Hello and welcome to Inclusive Finance Frontiers presented by SIGA, a global partnership that works to advance the lives of people living in poverty through inclusive finance. I'm your host Sai Krishna Kumaraswamy, a SIGA financial sector analyst, here with my co-host Yasmin bin Humam. Hi Yasmin. Hi Sai. So as you know, there has been a rapid explosion of digital technologies and infrastructure in emerging markets. This has allowed the provision of technology-enabled financial services, also known as fintech. So, to give an example of fintech, when we go for lunch and I send money from my phone to your phone to split the costs, is that an example of fintech? Yes, digital payments between individuals is a classic example. But as the provision of non-financial services also digitizes, think of online e-commerce platforms, remote gig work platforms, we see that providers are able to integrate financial tools into the provision of these other services. This is often known as banking as a service or embedded finance. So to me embedded finance sounds intriguing but complicated to pull off. Is that the case? It can be. Innovative fintech providers are very good at designing products like digital credit, buy now pay later or credit scoring algorithms. But these providers lack the scale and the distribution networks of incumbent providers like banks or microfinance institutions. So, an example of embedded finance might be if I go online and I buy seeds to plant tomatoes in my garden. And by the way, I've actually brought some tomatoes from my garden for you today. We can see if you like them later. And I choose the option to pay in installments over time through the websites. I'm combining digital credit and a digital payment option, which are probably facilitated by a company that's not the same company that's providing seeds. Is that right? That's right. Embedded finance helps several players come together and combine their strengths. It enables a whole new generation of innovative players to leverage the foundations laid by more established companies to reach new scale and new customers, including low-income customers. This also makes sense from a business perspective, which is probably why we are going to see many more players come together in the future. So, presumably, this could extend financial services digitally to people who previously didn't even have checking accounts. That's right. Some experts believe that embedded finance will define financial inclusion to come. But it remains to be seen what form embedded finance will take. Where are the opportunities? What are the risks involved? And which players are driving it in different regions? In this episode, we take a look at the future of embedded finance. We spoke with experts both within SeaGap and elsewhere to learn about the history of digital innovation, understand where the big opportunities in embedded finance are, what are the risks it poses, and how policymakers are thinking about these emerging business models. I'm curious to hear it. Let's start by going back in time, nearly 15 years to the early 2010s. This is when the growing popularity of mobile phones and the emergence of mobile money changed everything in financial inclusion. Peter Zetterli, a senior financial sector specialist at SeaGap, who has worked in the financial inclusion space for almost 20 years, says that the emergence of mobile money kicked off a first wave of digital innovation in financial inclusion. He says mobile money was born in Kenya around 2007 and it basically pioneered a new way for people to store and send money to one another. Sigap was 
early to recognize the potential for financial inclusion that was inherent in mobile money. People didn't need to live near a bank branch or have the formal kind of paperwork that you would need to open a bank account in order to use formal financial services. All you needed was to have a mobile phone and have a corner store agent nearby where you could get cash in and out of the system and you could have a formal financial account and participate in the formal financial system. This was a complete revolution of financial access across the world and certainly across Africa. In the 10, 15 years that have passed since then, we have now racked up around 1.3 billion mobile money accounts around the world, the vast majority of which belong to people who previously had no access to formal financial services. The advent of mobile money required a lot of hard work behind the scenes to ensure stakeholder collaboration and an effective customer awareness campaign. But the result was an incredibly successful financial solution. Peter says that it was a true win-win solution across different stakeholder groups. The potential to achieve development objectives was very clear from the start, but the business case for mobile money was also relatively clear early on. And CGAP and GSMA, among others, worked hard in the early days to demonstrate that business case and show it to mobile network operators. And the fact that there was such a clear and compelling argument for them out of pure commercial self-interest to move in this direction was what gave it so much momentum from the industry side of the spectrum. So there was a clear win-win across the social development objectives of the funder community and the development organizations and the commercial objectives of the mobile network operators. The third interested party, of course, is the financial regulators who were a bit more on the sidelines initially and took a little convincing, but also quickly saw that this model was going to help them achieve the financial inclusion objectives that most of them at that point had already started to articulate and enshrine in national financial inclusion strategies. Mobile money was indeed a big leap forward for financial inclusion, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where it proved more popular than in other regions. Today, there are over 1.3 billion mobile money accounts worldwide, the majority of which belong to people who didn't have a formal financial account before. But now, fast-forwarding to today, we have more perspective on the limitations of that first wave of digital innovation. The way I tend to describe what we've seen in financial inclusion through mobile money is a financial access that is broad but shallow. So a large number of people have gained access to the formal financial system. They've gained access to formal accounts and to payments. But it is shallow in the sense that they have not been able to reach more deeply to access a range of credit products, savings products, insurance products, investment products, you name it, that people need to manage their day-to-day financial lives. So mobile money has been extraordinarily successful in creating that breadth of access, but has not been very successful in creating the depth of access that we want. This may be about to change. Some believe we have entered a second wave of digital innovation that could deepen financial inclusion beyond what mobile money has been able to achieve. Embedded finance is the integration of financial services into other financial and non-financial apps and services and is one of the concepts that characterizes the second wave of innovation. 
The way I define embedded finance is simply financial services that are seamlessly integrated into a non-financial context. The simplest example might be in e-commerce. If you're buying something online, you go to checkout, oftentimes these days there's an offer for financing so that you can spread the cost of your purchase over multiple installments. That might help you with cash flow. It might let you be able to make larger purchases that otherwise you wouldn't be able to afford. That is a credit product that is seamlessly embedded into the checkout process of the e-commerce platform. You can also see insurance products that you can seamlessly tack on to the purchase so that you get an extended warranty on the thing that you're buying. In ride hailing, there is accident insurance that is automatically activated for the driver and for the passenger at the start of a trip, which might be reassuring if you're getting on a motorbike in downtown Jakarta in rush hour traffic. There are many kinds of working capital financing products, both in online e-commerce and in offline commerce, as in the case of corner store merchants that are able to access working capital purely on the basis of the cash flow that's visible through their digital payments. So why does this matter for financial inclusion? Firstly, it brings financial products and services much closer to people, making them easier to access precisely where and when they're needed. It also tends to make the products more relevant because they're designed to fit within a specific context. They are often easier to use because they're paperless, they tend to be heavily automated, and they're offered in a context and within a user interface that the customers are already familiar with. So there's nothing they need to learn. And finally, it can bring down costs because the financial service provider on the back end is basically offered a customer more or less free of charge. They can often use data from the platform to make a low cost risk assessment of the client. And the digital consumer company that is the front end can offer a financial service without the time and capital involved in getting a banking license. All of which is extremely significant for financial inclusion since it corresponds to the main barriers that people tend to face. access cost, product fit, and experience. We know that this is not just a hypothesis because we've just concluded our own research with over a thousand customers of these kinds of companies across four markets in Asia. This research has shown a very clear impact on the financial lives and well-being of these clients. More than half of customers we spoke to say that this is the first time they access the kind of services they were getting through that company and that they could not easily find a good alternative in the market, clearly indicating that their financial access is being expanded thanks to these models. More than half of these customers also say that their ability to manage their finances has improved and their financial stress has fallen thanks to these services. And most impressively of all, three out of four clients say that their quality of life has increased as a result of the financial services that they're getting access to through these companies. So we were very interested to use our fresh data to explore any gender differences in the potential of these embedded finance models to expand financial inclusion. The potential seems to be fairly equal across men and women. Now, there's a lot that's positive about this move to embedded finance, but it doesn't come without some significant risks to consumers, not least of which is how customer data is being used. We'll hear more about this later. First though, let's talk about the opportunities. Two main developments over the last decade are converging today and laying the foundations for embedded finance to drive financial inclusion. The first one is about the customer base. 
The different types of players around the world have been building large customer bases and distribution networks that can be leveraged to deliver a range of new services, including financial services. In Africa, this foundation has primarily been laid by mobile money providers. In Asia, it's largely e-commerce and ride-hailing companies. They have scaled very quickly across the region in a large number of countries and are very rapidly gaining the uptake on digital customer accounts, including payment wallets, as well as physical distribution through the network of drivers and stores that they have on their platform, similar to the mobile money agents and customers in Africa. So we're seeing the same combination of a very large customer base digital channel to that customer, and a sizable physical distribution network. But in the case of Africa, it's driven by mobile money. In the case of Southeast Asia, it is driven by ride-hailing and delivery companies. The ride-hailing and delivery companies see a similar opportunity to the mobile money providers in that they recognize that there is a big unmet need for financial services across large segments of the populations in the countries where they operate. They tend to see things a little bit differently in that they are often using financial services specifically to drive the core business. For the mobile money providers, the financial services opportunity is a standalone opportunity in some ways, whereas for the ride-hailing and delivery companies, same as for the e-commerce companies, it is more a means to an end, namely to drive more sales in the core business. So they tend to be a bit more focused in the specific financial products and services that they embed and how they embed them into their platforms. Meanwhile, Latin America has been taking its own unique path. Ana Maria Zuluaga, is the head of the innovation group at Superintendencia Financiera, Colombia's financial supervisor. The country's example of embedded finance comes to the forefront through Rappi, a super app that offers users home delivery from restaurants, pharmacies, stores, supermarkets, and even other establishments without a delivery service. Rappi has also been expanding to include other services like payments and mobility emerging as one of the main players of digital transformation in Latin America. Rapid, they see the potential that to offer e-wallet in this marketplace. So they make an alliance with Banco da Vivienda and with a solution that Banco da Vivienda have that is called Davi Plata. Two, three years ago, Rapi starts to develop and to talk with the financial superintendents to take a formal financial licensing. So they now have the licensing and they are now a financial institution that is able to provide the electronic deposits and credit, but also is a marketplace. So while different industries have been driving this phenomena in different regions, globally, the result is very similar large customer bases and digital infrastructure have been built. The second key development in the last 10 years that has set the stage for embedded finance to drive financial inclusion has been an explosion of tech-savvy providers who offer financial and non-financial services that meet a wide range of consumer needs. Peter explains that there are broadly three groups of players pursuing embedded finance opportunities from different vantage points. One is the banks themselves. The banks are recognizing that there's a big opportunity in just staying on the back and having partners bring the customers to you. 
The second set of players is those front-end players. The second set of companies tends to be very large digital consumer companies, often platforms in the e-commerce, ride-hailing, and so forth space. I would include mobile money providers in that category since they very much have a large customer base, they have a cheap digital channel to the consumer, and they have a large physical distribution network through which they can reach the consumers. The third group is the fintech startups that are innovating on product. There are many very exciting things happening on financial services at the moment. They tend to have the technology to do things that financial service providers traditionally have not been able to do. They tend to bring a lot of new ideas and a lot of new energy. What they don't tend to have is a banking license and a balance sheet or a large customer base that they can easily reach with those products. Embedded finance enables these players to combine their strengths. That is, it enables a generation of innovators to leverage the foundations laid by established companies to bring new services to market at scale, including services for low-income customers. From a business standpoint, these types of partnerships often make sense and the trend toward embedded finance looks set to continue. We are seeing a growing number of mobile money providers and others exploring these opportunities. In fact, research by Plaid and Accenture puts the market opportunity of embedded finance at $250 billion by 2025. To better understand how these opportunities are playing out in the real world, we spoke to two different companies in two different parts of the world. First, M-Pesa. Africa is home to a growing percentage of the world's low-income households, and mobile money providers serve many of them. Traditionally, however, mobile money companies have struggled to expand their service offerings beyond payments for a couple of reasons. First, they face regulatory barriers. They are unable to offer banking services directly unless they are willing to become a licensed bank and this is too onerous for most. Second, their core business models are based on transaction fee revenues. This works well for payments but can create issues when expanding into other financial products. Laura Crow heads the financial services team at M-Pesa Africa. We as an entity, we're not a regulated licensed provider of credit and savings. So we partner with banks to be able to provide that. So we're not a deposit taking institution. So we are limited in terms of our voice at the table to influence yes, some of the product design that we would like to see. And I think a lot of banks are relatively risk averse and it's been taking them a long time to see the evolution of the mobile payments and mobile money story and also how to effectively partner with us and counter some of their concerns that they have from a competition perspective as well. So we have been limited in terms of what we actually want to offer the customer because we haven't always been able to design a product that all our partners are happy with and one that we think will resonate with customers on the interface that's available. I think that situation is starting to change. I think our partners are becoming much more knowledgeable about this space. They obviously have more intent of their own to service these customers. I think they see the unbanked less as a risky proposition, but people that they want to start bringing into the ecosystem in partnership with ourselves. And obviously app adoption is changing all the time. 
M-Pesa is developing a platform that banks can plug into for a range of credit services. This leverages their core payment service, their distribution network of digital channels and almost 600,000 agents, and rich customer data. These services range from merchant loans to pay-as-you-go consumer financing. The banks provide the balance sheet, banking licenses, and product design, while M-Pesa provides the customer relationships, data, and distribution channels. Essentially, the company is transitioning from being a payment service to being a financial platform where its 50 million customers, including half a million businesses that transact more than $7 billion a month, can access a wider range of financial services. Many of these customers are from low-income, financially underserved, or excluded segments. There are several key principles guiding why M-Pesa has this kind of strategic aim and ambition. The first is to be super close to the customer. So we want to make sure that the way that we provide these services keep us close to the customer, understand their needs and what products they want in order to make sure we stay fully relevant to them and also to make sure we're collecting the data upon customers with the right permissions from them. So important in doing good product design and being able to give them more value in terms of the financial services we have on offer. So we really need to be in a place where we don't get pushed into just being one fulfillment layer of a platform, but we have enough capability end to end to have that relationship with the customer. If I just take an individual as an example, you might have someone that's saving to set up their own business. So they're putting some money aside and then they get the opportunity to use some of that savings to get an additional loan to be able to set up a bike shop. And then from that, they want to be selling them to other M-Pesa customers and they can offer a discount to M-Pesa customers if they go to their bike shop and purchase a bike from them. And it's through getting access to more sales that they're able to pay that loan off and get a higher credit limit to then maybe set up another branch somewhere else. And that same customer that's gone to buy a bike might again be using that for their own business to better be able to access markets to sell some of their goods. So overall, I guess what I see is this ecosystem where customers and businesses are just getting closer together within M-Pesa and being able to utilize it to create more value for themselves and love what we're able to provide them that they want to stick around with us for the journey. A second, I think, is just common platform strategy and dynamics. They want to be in a position that it's much easier to build products develop once and deploy to many and you'd be easy able to customize products because there's a cost efficiency there and the benefits we can relay back to the customer and keep the adoption of our services. Mobile money providers are far from the only actors exploring embedded finance, especially beyond Africa. Grab Financial started out as a ride-hailing platform and has grown into one of the largest super apps in Southeast Asia. Increasingly, it is embedding financial services into its platform for riders, drivers and small businesses that use its core ride-hailing and delivery services. Puisan Che is the Director of Public Affairs and Policy at Grab. This year, Grab celebrates its 10th year anniversary as a company. And the Grab app was first conceived as a way 
to solve the problem of safe taxi rides. So our co-founder Ling wanted a safe way to get home at night. And she would pretend to be on the phone with her mum during late night drives to ensure her safety. So while developing our mobility solutions, we discovered that millions of Southeast Asians lacked access to basic financial services. We had to help our drivers set up bank accounts to store their earnings after driving on Grab. And we've helped over a million of our partners open bank accounts. We identified a significant market opportunity to unlock financial access and create economic empowerment in Southeast Asia. Today, around 6 in 10 Southeast Asians are unbanked, and 9 in 10 lack access to credit cards. Many don't have bank accounts, either because they, number one, live in rural areas where they don't have physical access to banks, number two, they don't know how to open a bank account, or number three, they simply do not have enough awareness or trust in banking services. A large number of Southeast Asians also transact predominantly in cash. This makes it difficult for them to build a credit history that would give them access to formal financial tools. So we started as a company getting more involved in financial services in 2017 with the aim to provide financial products that are simple, transparent, and flexible. And we've not looked back since. The pandemic accelerated the adoption of digital solutions across the region, including financial services. In 2020 alone, around 600,000 small businesses joined our platform to receive payments from customers who transacted online with them. We also helped a lot of new businesses establish a digital payment infrastructure as part of their business model. And on the lending front, we helped many small businesses who are badly affected by lockdowns. We also see governments looking to platforms like Grab to disperse financial subsidies. For example, the Malaysian government partnered with us to disperse financial support digitally to Malaysians. This meant that they could help send financial help even to the smallest kampongs or what we would consider villages in Southeast Asia with little logistical effort because they have the help of the platform. So there's so much more we can do and I'm pretty sure we're just scratching the surface on what we can do with financial services in the region. Grab made a great deal of progress in terms of having a large range of financial services, but they feel there's so much more they can do. Today, when I look at banking services in Southeast Asia, they can be quite inflexible, complex, and sometimes confusing. Many banks also still require customers to enter a physical bank branch or transact with an automated teller machine or ATMs. We see banks of the future being totally branchless and ATMless. We believe fintech platforms can be successful because we won't be restricted by the lack of physical infrastructure or having to have to build new buildings and branches, even in the smallest towns in Southeast Asia, to serve our customers. We believe that anyone with basic internet should be able to open up an app to get the financial services they need, all while sitting at home. So we hope to apply our expertise in digital and data and financial services to build a next-generation bank that can provide simple, transparent, and affordable services for Southeast Asians. And we're extremely excited to start this from Singapore and Malaysia in the coming years. I'd like to think of this next step in the same way as when we started out helping users access everyday services on our platform. And we want to make sure that we can improve our users' financial well-being and make it simple and open for all. While there's incredible potential to reap the rewards brought by the expansion of digital financial services, 
one of the barriers highlighted by Ana Maria is the digital divide. Here in Colombia, we have been working to offer a better access and quality to the internet network, but this is a challenge as a whole society. For example, we now have only 57% of households that have an internet connection, a fixed connection. And Colombia is a big country. The principal city's internet connection is huge. It could be 70%. But in the rural areas, we have 24% internet connection. So this is a public policy. Government is working to improve this. The gender divide adds another layer of complexity. According to GSME's Mobile Gender Gap Report 2022, women are now 16% less likely than men to use mobile internet, which equates to 264 million fewer women than men using mobile internet tools. Beyond these barriers, embedded finance also comes with risks. According to Patrick Mayer, a CGAP consultant focused on digital finance regulation, there are three different types of challenges one of which is data protection, as mentioned by Ana Maria earlier. These platforms are highly data-intensive, of course, and that's almost their currency, you might say. So the rules about consent for use of customer data, the management of customer data, the protection of data raise a lot of issues and create risks that we've seen, things that have happened in some of the countries that we work in. Secondly, competition. So platforms are based on network effects. So the bigger, the better, the more links, the more nodes, the better. So with a big tech, both data and network effects and the risks the competition of a growing, increasingly dominant platform are quite significant. There's a third risk that I'm not sure is so widely recognized and addressed, and it's that because platforms that have originated in sectors that are not the financial sector would include e-commerce sites, social media platforms and ride-hailing companies. When finance is combined with these other products and services, that creates certain risks having to do with the need for a distinctive treatment by regulators of financial services. But when they're owned or controlled or affected by a non-financial enterprise or entity, this has raised concerns through history. And often the ownership of those two types of entities is kept separate. Sometimes it's not. So in the value chain of financial services in this platform setting, the value chain runs through both financial and non-financial entities. Sometimes it might not reach a financial entity. It might be a credit extended by the e-commerce platform, in which case there might not be a financial regulator involved. And there may not be a need, but often there is. So because there are activities that are beyond the financial sector that are raising the need for finance and that are affecting the use of it and the risks to the customer and to the system generally, a financial regulator might not have good visibility over, say, the transport sector where an entity like Gojek 
or grab is operating. So there's a potential set of risks that can carry over into the financial sector that's not necessarily well understood or very visible to the financial regulator. Introducing a level of regulation that can protect customers without curbing business innovation can be tricky. Ana Maria shares some initiatives that the Superintendencia is taking to try and strike the right balance. We have top of mind the great experiences of work in UK and Singapore, Australia. And what we see, the first thing is the openness. We are very open. And is the change of the mindset, the financial supervisors, the regulatory entity or the authorities regarding to the financial ecosystems are very formal and you can speak, we can share ideas, you can make, share a different approach. That is the first thing that we take in mind. And that is why five years we are going, I think that already, we create a group that is our innovation office, but it is more than an innovation. We talk with the ecosystem, even when we see a different model that we don't understand, we go there and, hey, can you tell me about that? Great. And they come to us and, hey, I have a new idea. Would you want to listen to us? Of course. This change of the mindset of how the relationship works was the first thing. And the second one is take important regulatory tools to test pilots. The sandbox are great tools. We have here in Colombia, we have two sandboxes, supervisor sandbox and our regulatory sandbox. So these spaces have been great to prove different kinds of services, product that sometimes we come with the idea, but mostly there are the third parties. The superintendencia's approach seems to clearly be spurring innovation in Colombia. But Ana Maria points to the limitations in human and technical resources given the fast evolution of business models and technology in cultivating even more innovation. Despite the challenges mentioned so far and the risks, embedded finance is set to continue. Though it will look different across regions depending on who is driving it, mobile money providers, e-commerce companies, or super apps like Grab and others. To ensure the potential benefits are realized, the right regulations will be crucial. Efforts to close the digital divide will also be key to ensure more women, people in rural areas, and other groups can access and use the phones, data plans, and other things required for digital finance. The potential is there to write the next chapter of the financial inclusion story, one marked by not just the broadening, but also the deepening of financial inclusion. I think embedded finance will definitely be a game changer. Just like mobile money was able to rapidly scale up access to financial accounts and to payments for people, embedded finance holds out the promise of rapidly scaling up access to a wider range of services. And I can see very compelling reasons from the commercial players, from the regulators, and from the funders all to support that development in different ways. So I expect that's what we're going to see. 
So, Yasmin, what's your hope for embedded finance? Do you agree with experts who predict that it will define financial inclusion for years to come? Well, I definitely see the potential for it to do so, but I'm of two minds. Personally, I'm curious to track the evolution of embedded digital credit because credit is a major constraint for small business owners and agricultural producers who don't meet traditional collateral requirements or have formalized businesses that would qualify them for government programs. And so to have a platform that helps them prove they have a good product and a good client base to a credit provider who can use alternative data, that would really make a difference. You mentioned you were of two minds. What gives you pause? So, on the other hand, the assumption is that everything and everyone is going online, and that will only happen with really concerted efforts to close the digital divide. And I feel like we're nowhere near that yet, so we can't put the cart before the horse. Can't agree with you more. Thank you for tuning in to the Inclusive Finance Frontiers podcast from CGAP. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and spread the word among your networks. Special thanks to our episode guests, my co-host Yasmin bin Humam, the CGAP Podcast Production Committee, and CGAP's production partner, Volubility Podcasting.